This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is the World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with Victor Davis Hanson, America's foremost military historian, about his new book, The Second World Wars. You refer, Victor, to the global conflict during the years 1939-1945, but why the plural wars instead of the customary singular World War II? I entitled it in the plural for two reasons. One, there was no comprehensive idea of a single war, that is a World War II, until that seminal year 1941, in which the invasion, surprise attack or invasion of the Soviet Union on June 22nd by the Axis powers, Germany and its allies in Europe, changed what had been a series of border wars against Norway, Poland, the Low Countries, Yugoslavia, Greece, into truly a global war that went all the way from the English Channel to the Volga. Volga River. And then that same year on December 7th, the attack on British bases at Singapore and Pearl Harbor sort of made an Asian book into that. And so up until that time, there were still people referring to the Great War. And suddenly the Great War was now seen as a World War One, And this new war after 1941 is seen as World War II. And the other reason was simply that I don't think there had ever been a war before or since in which it was thought, fought in so many theaters simultaneously. And by that I mean being in a U-boat under uh, the North Sea didn't have much to do with jungle fighting in Burma or being 28,000 feet in a B- above the earth in a B-17 or being in a desert um, with Rommel. So there were so many different theaters, geographic but also methodological, armor, air, sea, ground, that I thought that the the idea of a plurality would serve both those purposes. You also say that you're not attempting a chronological sequence or a comprehensive narrative. How do you divide the book then under various uh, theaters, sections, ideas, themes, uh, and and what are some of those? Yeah, I, I tried to do something in the manner that I had written a history of the Peloponnesian War, and when I, I entitled parts, ideas, air, water, earth, fire, people. And then within those larger parts or rubrics, I try to tell the individual uh, story, both in a, chronolo- in a semi-chronological, so if I have air, I talk about the war in the air over Poland or over France or bombing, but also I, I'm trying to look at analytical questions. Was it smart to invest in V-1 rockets? Was it smart to, or should you invest in four-engine bombers? Uh, were fighter planes effective? If so, why not? And, and try to assess the military efficacy of all these decisions about whether to build a destroy, 20 destroyers or one battleship. In that way, the unifying theme was that Germany, Italy, and Japan were absolutely incapable or un unsuited to fight a war anywhere other than their immediate environs. They didn't have the technological excellence, the manufacturing clout, or the leadership ability 
to envision a global war, and that was quickly evident. In 19, within about three years, they were defeated once they made that error. So, so from their, their point of view, the global war is almost over on practically the day it began, right? Yeah, I think so. If you're going to fight a global war with countries of the magnitude and size of the Soviet Union and the United States, as soon as 1941, that decision was made, they increased uh, the numbers of their enemies by about 300 million. And to give one example, in late 1944, the GDP of the United States was larger than all six belligerents put together, larger than what Italy's had been before it was knocked out, larger than Germany's at its peak, larger than the Soviet Union and Britain. So they didn't know what they were getting into. And when they got into it, you know, if you're going strategically, if you want to fight a global war, you have to ask yourself a simple question. Do I have ability to impair or thwart the enemy's mechanisms of, of fighting their uh, manpower and their manufacturing capability? And while the allies did, the Axis never, never created or manufactured a four engine bomber, which would allow them to bomb the industrial base of the Soviet Union and the Urals or the United States. Or they didn't, in the case of Italy and Germany, they didn't build a, a blue water navy. They had no aircraft carriers. And Japan had aircraft carriers, but not the ability to fuel them on the high seas to get anywhere uh, near the United States and sustain uh, in a sustained manner that might stop aircraft production, let's say, in, in uh, San Jose or Kaiser shipping yards in Portland and Hayward. They just didn't do that. They weren't thinking strategically in that way. They weren't thinking very clearly at all. I mean, the blunders on, on the part of the the Axis are truly uh, <laughs> monumental. You, would you care to mention a few of those? We kind of forget that by May 1941, Germany had won the European War. And by that, I mean all of the territory that is now in the European Union uh, was under German control. And basically, you could say almost from the North uh, the North Sea, or maybe the Arctic Circle up in northern Norway, all the way to the Sahara Desert, and from the British, uh, the English Channel, all the way to the Soviet border. So we had won that war, and uh, even Hitler was thinking of demobilizing some divisions. But the decision to go into the Soviet Union immediately took on a new, a new wrinkle in the war, because it was the first time Hitler had ever fought someone who had more industrial cap capacity, a larger manpower base, and had better weapons. He didn't know that, but they actually did. And then a vast territorial expanse in which nobody, whether it was Charles of Sweden or Napoleon, had ever been able to invade from the West successfully. And the same was true of Japan. It was able to fight a uh, one-front war against China it killed over 16 million Chinese and occupied half the country, but it was not able to fight a two-front war, and maybe we could even call it a three-front war, by taking on both the second and the first largest navies in the world with the British and the American Navy. And so it, it was inept. And, and why they thought that, I guess your question, Lewis, is why would they think they could get away with it? And the answer is, the Soviets had collaborated under the Ribbentrop-Molotov Pact of 1939 of August 23rd, and they really didn't think the Soviets, they not only thought the Soviets uh, were duplicitous, but the Germans thought they must have wanted this pact because they were afraid of us, 
And in World War One, they had uh, sued for peace in 1917. They had not fought well in Finland. Uh, they had not made their democracy demarcation points very rapidly in Poland when they divided up Poland. They didn't know much about their success against the Japanese in 1939 on the, on the eastern border, but they were convinced that they could get away with it, and they uh, were sorely mistaken. And uh, that was the real turning point. And it was completely unnecessary because Stalin had largely supplied them with what he had pledged to do so under the pact. So at the at the end in your last chapter, when you we'll get to that, but uh, you you make the point that World War Two was a preventable conflict. What, what what do you mean by that? I mean I mean that's yeah. yeah. There were three reasons why, uh, why I said that and why it could be could have been prevented. If the Soviets had not signed that pact in August of 1939. Hitler would probably have not gone into Poland, and he probably would have not invaded France. He had the calculus of World War I, where he thought, I knocked out Russia in three years, but I never got more than 70 miles into France, I being Germany. And so he thought, you know, we can't have another two-front war. And that was the reason for the pact. But had Russia early on said, we're not going to make a pact with you, we're going to have a defensive alliance as we did in World War I with France, he probably wouldn't have done it. Second, uh, American isolationism had, was culpable as well. Had the United States said after World War I, as we did after World War II, we're going to stay engaged and we're going to pledge to protect the sanctity of French democracy then, and actually station troops there as we did in World War II, I think Germany would not have invaded. And of course, if Britain had not, under uh, Stanley Baldwin and Neville Chamberlain, appeased Germany, and actually, in some cases, among the aristocratic classes, expressed sympathy for it, and especially in the case of Mussolini as well, I think uh, the war could have been avoided because uh, American, so I, I guess I'd sum up American isolationism, British appeasement, and Russian collaboration convinced the, the Axis to do something very stupid, and that is to take on three countries whose industrial base and manpower sources were vastly superior to their own. You also make the point that one of the reasons the uh, Allies won and the Axis powers lost was the difference between democratic government and, you know, totalitarian. Yeah, that's a very controversial statement because, of course, the Soviet Union, one of the big three allied powers, was totalitarian. But my point was that if you have a majority of your alliance as democratic, in other words, you had the United States and Britain, there was a likelihood that there's going to be greater trust among all three. Whereas if all three of your Axis power, the leaders had come to power through sheer force and violence, and they had operated on those principles, and nobody trusted anybody. So to take a brief example, when Hitler went into the Soviet Union, the Japanese or the Italians had no idea what he was doing, even though he was vastly expanding the possibility of, of, a, of a global war. And then second, he really betrayed the Japanese because they had had a war going on with the Soviet Union when the pact with the, with the Soviet Union was made in August. So they were double-crossing the Japanese. In turn, the Japanese double-crossed the Germans because after April 1941, right on the eve, a couple of months before, they made a pact 
with the Soviet Union and the non-aggression pact. So successful was it that Russians were able to flag U.S. freighters with war material, send it to Eastern Russia right under the noses of Japanese who let it go in. So, and if we ask, if we count Mussolini going into Dalmatia or Greece without the knowledge of the Germans, so it, it sort of creates a picture that even though they were ideologically akin as fellow fascists, they were always double-crossing and, and pursuing individual agendas that were counter to the, the group effort. Where, and that was not true of the, of the United States, the Soviet Union, and Britain. I think largely because Britain and the United States were more or less good-faith partners. So that even though there's ideological difference between Britain and the U.S. on the one side and the Soviet Union on the other, they manage what you call a symphonic arrangement of their ground forces so that they are working together. I think that's a really good point because I tried to argue that there was a division of labor. And by that, I mean the Allies had the idea that British expertise and things like sonar or radar or experience fighting Germans or geographical assets, especially as a base to invade Europe, coupled with American manpower and especially American output and Soviet blood would destroy the Wehrmacht. So three out of four soldiers were killed on the Eastern Front and the Red Army suffered 12 million casualties and another 15 civilians. But they were able to do that because they did not invest in a strategic air force, they did not invest in submarines, they did not invest in uh, a blue water navy, they did not fight Italy, they did not really fight Japan until the last two weeks of the war. And the United States sort of took on those responsibilities with the understanding that most of the German army would have to be dealt on land with the Soviet Union. And uh, Britain, likewise, was able to uh, only suffer about 40% of the casualties they did in World War I because they invested so heavily in air and naval power with the idea that uh, in their sphere of influence, the Americans would supply most of the manpower on the ground. And so they were very good about sharing things, too. If the Sherman tank was found uh, to everybody's shock that it could not penetrate the glacis plate on a Tiger tank or even a Panther tank, the British quickly came up with this idea of putting a 17-pounder gun onto a Sherman turret, calling it a Firefly, and and really taking out superior German armor or putting a Rolls Merlin engine into a P-51 Mustang. So there was constant collaboration Uh, where we went to the Soviet Union and said, okay, invest in Katushka rockets, heavy artillery, and T-34 tanks, and we'll supply you 2,000 locomotives, 400,000 six-wheel trucks, most of your gloves and radios and uniforms and things like that, all of your aluminum. And uh, it was really quite stunning how coordinated and symphonic they were in comparison to the Japanese that fought a separate war from the Germans who fought a separate war from the Italians, both technologically and, and also strategically and tactically. We, we also, I mean, when I say we, I mean the Allied uh, powers were capable of learning from our mistakes. I mean, that's the other thing that's there. A democracy can can bring more talent to bear because it's it's willing to entertain new ideas. I I, I think that was also 
a key advantage that the Allies enjoyed. When Roosevelt looked at the strategy after 1941, after December 7th, there was a large group in the U.S. military that said, we have to have a second front in 1942. That was the American way of war dating back to Ulysses S. Grant, find the enemy on the ground, destroy him and get home. And Roosevelt himself for a while favored that, but and George Marshall was a great advocate. But as the British and we consulted, it was found that we didn't have the expertise, we didn't have the naval superiority, we didn't have the air superiority, we didn't have the landing craft, and we didn't really have the leadership that was contentiously debated. Uh, and the British almost played robed Athenian philosophers to our Roman centurions and talked down to us, but they were actually right. And in this process of give and take, uh, among the military and the civilian control of it, Roosevelt came to the correct decision, which was not to invade until we were able to, which was not until June 1944, but to to wage a vigorous war on the periphery of the Axis in Italy, North Africa, and in the skies over Europe. Talk about the quality of, first of all, the soldiers on both sides, and then Talk about the quality of the leadership and the generals on both sides. Well, it's another paradox arose because I think most people realize that Germany, given its military tradition since its founding in 1871, had a strong infantry division. There had never been anything like the 19th century German um, general staff. In World War I, they killed far more soldiers than were, were lost. Same was true in World War II. Even on the Western Front, when we had air supremacy, they killed 1.7 American soldiers to each one they lost. They killed about six Soviet soldiers to every one they lost. And so we understood that. And the answer in the Allied mind was, you kill Germans with air power and artillery, but you don't slug it out in a World War I-like ground movement. And that was largely successful. And the same thing was true of the Soviets. We understood that the Soviet Union was not a mobile, flexible force. It had not done, as I said, not done well in uh, an expeditionary role in Finland. It had not done too well in Poland. But on its own territory, historically, it was invincible, even though its tactics were frontal and aggressive. Not as simplistic as most people say, but nevertheless, it was sort of inflexible. But uh, the idea was really World War II would be decided on two propositions. Will the Axis powers that had superior infantry in the case of even Japan and Germany, will they learn to produce goods and services like the Allies? And will the Allies learn how to fight more like the Axis in terms of morale and alone? And the answer was solved in three years. And that is the American soldier became more like the German soldier then the German industrials became like the American industrials. And the same was true of Britain. During the Blitz, Britain was producing more airframes than was Germany that had most of Europe under its control. As far as leadership, you would think the Germans would have the, the vast advantages, not just because they had been at war, in the case of us and the Soviet Union, two and, uh, two and a half years respectively, longer, but they'd had a... Uh, a glorious military tradition, the Franco-Prussian Wars. They had fought well on the ground in World War One. But the genius of someone like von Manstein or von Rundstedt or Klug 
or even people at Guderian was all predicated on having strategic insight. These were masterful tacticians, but the German four-star general was not a master strategist. If you said, we're going to go into France in May 1940, von Manstein, figure out a way to get to the Ardennes, maybe in a sickle cut, he could do it in a brilliant way that maybe an American at that time could not. But the question is, once you start a war with France and now you're at the coast, how do you knock out Britain? That's a strategic question of, do we have the air or naval supremacy necessary to invade the, the island? If we don't, why in the world did we declare war on them? And that was where it was lacking because Hitler and Mussolini and to a lesser extent Tojo were incompetent strategists. They never asked the basic question, how do we destroy the enemy's ability to make war? Whereas in our case, uh, Roosevelt, from the very beginning, along with Churchill, understood that the war had to be fought in an existential sense, and they had to come up with the strategy and the weaponry and the technology to destroy Berlin and Tokyo and Rome. They had to literally go in there and find a way to remove the Nazis, the fascists, and the J Japanese militarists by force of arms. And so they were looking at strategic solutions to that problem, which were never even imagined by the Axis powers. And so I, I think really, if you look at Churchill and Roosevelt, to a lesser extent, Stalin, they had, a, they had a brilliant, they really did have a strategic sense of how to fight the war. And then they relied on, uh, we were not so good with four-star generals. I don't think we were as quite as good as the, we being the Americans again, as the uh, British or the Russians or the Germans. But where we really excelled was a one notch lower on the ground with two-star generals, three-star generals, the early career of George Patton or Lucian Truscott or Jim Gavin or people like that were excellent. But when we got up to the four-star, we had sort of a, I don't know, a bureaucratic mindset, Omar Bradley, Mark Clark. They were not quite at the caliber of their of their. Uh, enemy. And the Navy was excellent. It always was. We had a strong naval tradition. Roosevelt was a naval man. We had invested under the Vincent uh, appropriations in the 30s. So there was no Navy as uh, far-sighted as the American Navy. It quickly became the largest Navy in the world uh, within two years after joining the world, surpassing the British. And when you had men like Nimitz and Halsey, they were, they were just excellent. So it's a mixed picture, but I think the ultimate advantage was our supreme command with Churchill and Roosevelt and Stalin, that uh, the Axis were pathetic in comparison on strategic decision-making. In the last chapter of your book, you talk about the uh, paradox. Do, do you remember what that, those few phrases are, or shall, or shall I remind you? You, well, I had a lot of paradoxes. Yeah. Maybe you could remind me of which one. Well, I mean, the ones that the, the Soviet Union is is the biggest loser in terms of uh, yes. people killed, but the biggest gainer in territory, yeah. and that the it, it is the allied democracies that save communism. Yeah, <laughs> and and is, and the and and the Soviet totalitarian power that helps the the uh, Western democratic power. Yeah, there's there's a lot of tra tragedies, paradoxes, but maybe tragic paradoxes that we had gone to war in theory to keep Eastern Europe, that was what the British said, free. That's why British, Britain, by the way, who was the only power that either went to war without either being directly attacked 
uh, or attacking another power, but on the principle of protecting an ally in the case of Poland. So the British had gone in and we had supported the idea that Eastern Europe must not fall under German totalitarianism, and yet the war ensured that the Soviets would demand a buffer zone and incorporate all of Eastern Europe. And that was a that was a, a, a terrible paradox. And then we ended up with sort of the bad propaganda after the war was over because the defeated Axis powers were within our sphere of influence, at least in the case of Germany, three quarters of it. And we were trying to rebuild society on the ground and create democracies in our own image in the case of Italy and Japan and and Germany. And the Soviets had a better propaganda. They were telling the world, much of it in the former British Empire, a collapsing British Empire, and maybe exposed to the influence of American capitalism. They're saying the war is really not over. It's a national liberation, a struggle for the same principles of World War II. But our former allies, Britain and America, have joined the act, the defeated Axis. So they're using Japanese uh, paramilitary enforcement in Korea, or they're turning to former Wehrmacht officers in Germany, or they never really weeded out the fascist in Rome. And so that, that really was the start of the Cold War, and it was a burden we had to carry, that we had the uh, disgraced Axis as clients, and the Soviet Union was making the very persuasive case that they were on the side of the global poor. And then when you throw into the mixture weaponry, it didn't really, in this new war to come, having a lot of B-17s or B-24s or destroyers on hand was not quite as uh, valuable as flooding the world with cheap proto-assault weapons. And then by 1947, the Kalishnikovs and landmines and artillery and mortars. So the Soviet Union not only had a message, but it had a type of warfare on the ground with cheap accessible weapons in vast number, numbers that really would turn out to haunt us in the next 30 years. The, the Soviets also had the propaganda advantage of pointing out that the Western uh, powers had, you know, engaged in horrendous atrocities, the, the firebombing of Tokyo and of Dresden and of, and of Hamburg and, and so forth. And, and the, uh, that was another failure that we, that we carried out of the war. Yes, the Soviet Union, uh, of the 5 million Wehrmacht soldiers who were killed, they probably killed about almost 4 million of them. And half of those were left to die in camps, not as much as the Germans, not to the degree the Germans had killed Soviet prisoners. But the Soviets fought a very barbaric war on the ground against very barbaric enemies in violation of almost every tenet of the Geneva Code. The Americans and British, more or less, in a strictly military sense, were virtuous. In other words, most people wanted to be captured by American or British soldiers. And whatever side you are, you did not want to fall in the hands of the German army, the Japanese army, or the Soviet army. That being said, World War II was a war against civilians. And by that, I mean the 60 million who died, about 45 to 50 million were civilians. And the irony, and getting back to the idea of a paradox, the irony was that two powers, Japan and Germany, killed about uh, 70% of the 80% of the civilians who died. And that mean, and here I'm referring to the nearly 20 million civilians that were killed both in, through the Holocaust and Russian starvations uh, and attacks on civilian centers 
in the Soviet Union and the 15 to 20 million Chinese that died at the hands of the Japanese Imperial Army. And yet, as you point out, after the war, we were blamed for firebombing Hamburg and Dresden and um, Yokohama and Tokyo, et cetera, even though the total numbers of people who died were probably about 2 million civilians to the atomic weapons and firebombing at the most. So we killed a fraction of the civilians that that the Soviets, and, and the Soviets killed a lot as well. Uh, when they went into Germany, they probably, uh, they, they forcibly evicted 13 million Germans, 2 million of which uh, perished when they uh, crossed the borders of East Prussia. So I, I guess that that tragic paradox is the people who killed most of the civilians uh, later pointed at the people who killed the least number as somehow, because they were not perfect, they were less than good. World War II achieves a, a peace, uh, uh, more or less, uh, maybe an uneasy peace or under the rules of the Cold War that lasts for at least 50 years. But, and, but now we, we seem to be, you know, we have our longest war ever going on in Afghanistan and we've got wars going on in, throughout the Middle East. And are there any lessons to be learned from the Second World War about our current uh, situation? Well, I, just as a preliminary answer to that, if we were to ask the big three, did they succeed in their war aims? Stalin, of course, would say yes, but I think Churchill and Roosevelt would say yes in the sense that they wanted to avoid another war in the West. They felt that the West had superior technology, and when the West went to war against the West, the corpses mounted as no other war. It was always existential. They'd been through it in World War One. They'd been through it in World War Two. They did not want a World War Three, and I think the rise of NATO keep Germany down, Russia out, and America in, so to speak, Lord Ismay's formulation. Along with, I give credit to, in some cases, the EU, they were able to solve that problem. But as you point out, they weren't able to solve the existential problem of war itself. And so what did they, what did they miss? I, I think they real, what they missed was that if you're gonna go to war, especially in the postmodern era, and you're going to, stop the problem or solve the conflict, you have to change the way of thinking of the enemy so that they don't have a presupposition that they can continue doing what caused the difference or strife or provocation or aggression in the first place. And the only way you can do that is to defeat the enemy, humiliate the enemy, and then occupy the enemy in a way that we did in Italy and Japan and to a lesser extent um, in Korea and and in Germany, but we did not do in World War One, and they thought that they were all of their planning for the post-war world was predicated on we're not going to repeat the Versailles Treaty. Somehow, because of the advent of nuclear weapons and the rise of the sophisticated, different sophisticated doctrines about what war was and what it was for and what its methodology and aims were. We sort of reverse that order where we go into various places like Vietnam or Afghanistan and we want to change uh, the politics or the culture into a way that we find conducive, but we don't defeat the enemy first because that would require a level, level of violence that we feel as moderns we can't put up with or we can't tolerate or 
belong to a different age than our own. And so we end up in this sort of Orwellian situation. We're telling people to vote or we're instructing people how to ensure free speech while the enemy is killing them, blowing them up with suicide vests or landmines. And yet we don't have the ability to inflict a level of violence, which history, especially in World War II, has told us is necessary to convince people to accept the terms of their of their victors. And so we end up with either non-ending wars or wars that we lose. Well, do you have a happier note that you would rather end on or, or we can stop it right there? <laughs> I mean. No, I, I have a happier note. And that is, uh, it, it's easy to criticize uh, World War II because the, the Cold War followed, but the Cold War did not end in 60 million dead, as was true of World War II. And so when we look back at the achievement of Great Britain, for example, it was the only country to be at war with with Hitler's Germany throughout the war. No other country fought it as it did from May, excuse me, June of 1940 to June of 1941, all by itself. It had hardly any of the resources, and yet during that period it outproduced Hitler in almost every category of armament. And when you look at the United States, it had the 17th largest military when the war broke out. And then within three years was able to make a B-24 every hour and produce six of the 600 airframes that were produced, produced almost 500,000 of them. There was a level of competence, zeal, organization among the democracies that really was astounding and, and was able to stop the nightmare of Hitler basically when the United States entered and entered in a full partnership with the Soviet Union and Britain in 1941, was able to stop that nightmare within three years. So I think we have to give that generation a great deal of credit. Okay. Well, on that happier note, thank you, Victor Davis Hanson, for speaking with us today about your new book, The Second World Wars. Thank you for having me. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.